work. Let's see here. What's going on, everybody? All right, sorry. This is my first Skype show that I've done here, and so it was a little confusing, but we've got it all set up now. Um, I've got it on my phone, and I'm a little flustered right now. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, this is uh, this is Eastern Current, I think episode 29. We got our buddy Owen Player here we're going to introduce in a second, um, but we're real excited. I got Cameron Pappas here, um, Billy Thorpe just helping us doing a little uh, technical difficulty troubleshooting here right before we went live, but I think we're good. Uh, shoot me a comment if you cannot hear us uh, or if you're having any trouble here and uh, and and we should be uh, we should be good to go but yeah thanks for tuning in we're gonna let people jump on here for a second can everybody hear me just shoot shoot in the comments let me know you can hear me and uh, and, and and we'll go from there but um, episode 29 and we've got Owen player like I was saying, <laughs> just talking in circles <laughs> um, very flustered very flustered let's this. take a deep breath real quick have a have a sip of my lemonade Ooh. okay scotch Okay, Scotch. But yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, sight fishing for redfish uh, as well as cobia and other other fishing opportunities down in Beaufort, South Carolina. I believe is how you say it. I always get it mixed up with the North Carolina, um, the North Carolina Beaufort. But um, we're excited. We're going to go over our sponsors real quick, which are uh, Eastern Angling, which is my guide business. Um, Seato, another little, uh, they, they do some co-promoting with us and great guys over there. If you run into a sandbar or your motor craps out on you, Seato is nice to have. Um, we got Thorpe Creative, our technical support here on the show. Um, full blown, uh, twenty four hours a day. You can call him and he'll help you troubleshoot any technical difficulties. Yeah, thank God he answered. <laughs> um, and then we've got uh, Ice Strike Fishing out of South Carolina. They make uh, incredible jig heads and, and other uh, fishing lures that we use. Um, Afco and Marshware, two clothing companies that that make great gear, um, street clothing and fishing clothing. Check them out. Um, Cameron Pappas, uh, you want to you want to say what's up? This is what your third or fourth show now. Third, I think. Third yeah. show. Nice man. He's he's getting I'm good. Pumped. I think next next week we'll have him do the intro because I suck at it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I can remember all of the. Uh... The slogans that go along with the with the sponsors. I couldn't either. I just said the same thing like three times in a row. <laughs> I was just kept looking at all my devices to make sure everything was working correctly. But um, hopefully this camera doesn't crap out on us because if it does, then uh, you're going to just be looking at my uh, my under chin. <laughs> we'll just put it Owen. on Owen the whole time. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and bring bring Owen on here. This is Owen Player, everybody. What's up, Owen? Can you hear me? Hey guys, what's going on? Sorry, you're breaking up a little bit there. Oh, yeah, I got good. you. I got you. Awesome, awesome. So, Owen, you're in. It's Beaufort, South Carolina, correct? Beaufort, South Carolina. Awesome. Yeah, it's uh, heart of the Low Country, man. You know, it was uh, Paris Island brings a lot of Marines there. You know, it's it's a lot of water and and uh, a lot of people. Right on. And you've grown up there. You were born there, right? Born and raised. Yeah, nice. born and raised, man. I lived lived there my whole life. I was really lucky to. Uh, Grew up on the Broad River, which is a pretty awesome fishery, and I've been fishing there my entire life. Cool, cool deal. Um, so let's uh, let's hear your backstory, kind of how you you grew up there. But when did you start fishing? How did you get into fishing? And and kind of give us your whole story from there till your guiding <clears throat> career. Man, well, uh, I grew up, you know, fishing my entire life. My parents had me on the boat since I was, you know, five months old, and so you know, growing up in Beaufort. If you don't like the water, you would hate living there, you know. And so I grew up, you know, shrimping, fishing, crabbing, all the fun stuff, tubing, everything else. And uh, as a kid, fishing I always liked a lot. But when I go with my dad, and we would never catch anything, 
you know, and I fished with my dad for like three years and, you know, I caught maybe two redfish in that time. And then there's one day we went out and fish in a fallen tide in November and caught like 50 redfish in one little area on uh, live shrimp. And uh, that day I realized, man, fishing's fun. You know, you actually, when you catch fish, it's a lot of fun. And then that day I actually learned a lot. So did my dad. And so I grew up fishing with him. And when I was in high school, I had to get a job and, you know, pay for gas and everything else. So I started working at the local fly shop, a place called Bay Street Outfitters. And, uh, and working there, I got really into fly fishing because it was something I didn't know a lot about. You know, this is before YouTube and, you know, a lot of craze on the Internet about saltwater fly fishing in general. And in my area, not a lot of people were doing it. And uh, Tony Royal, my boss there, brought it there in 1995. And, uh, you know, wade fishing for tailing redfish and things like that were all very new at the time. And it intrigued me because it was hard. You know, anybody and their brother could go out with an artificial and catch a redfish. But when you're fly fishing, especially to a tailing fish or, you know, low tide fish and sight fishing, I felt like it was a little more primal. It was kind of like bow hunting versus hunting a deer with a rifle, yeah. you know, and so I liked it, and I liked it a lot, and I liked telling people about it, and I liked sharing my stories and mostly taking people to do it because it kind of surprised them that, hey, I could do this in, in South Carolina. I didn't even know you could fly fish here. I thought you fly fished in the mountains for trout. Um, and so I realized an opportunity as a young kid that guiding was something I was really interested in, and while everybody else was applying to colleges and, and doing that, I got my captain's license when I was a senior in high school and, and started guiding full-time when I was 18 years old. And so the day I, I graduated... Um, I started fishing and, uh, it was a lot of fun. You know, what I liked about it was I wasn't working a lot. I was fishing a lot and I really got to learn even more in that time period than I thought I knew because when you fish 15, 20 days in a row, you see things that you don't normally see if you only fish four or five times in a month. Right. And, uh, so that's what I liked was learning the fishery even more, but still every day you'd go out there if something would change or the winds would be different or the temperature or the time of year, and then when you take a guy on the bow of your boat that's never done it and try to teach him how to do it in eight hours, um, that challenge to me was something that I loved. You know, it was more of a passion. Um, and I got lucky where, you know, I, I realized it was something I enjoyed. And when people would fish with me, they would enjoy it, too. And I look at it as more of instruction than, than guiding. You know, I, I like taking guys out and teaching them. But then you get those guys that have been fishing in the Keys for 20 years and can throw an 80-foot cast. And those were the days that it was a lot of fun and it didn't feel like work, you know. For sure. Um, and so I did that for uh, the last 10 years. I was a guide full-time in Beaufort for 10 years. Uh, I still fish in Beaufort, you know, seven, eight days a month. And now I'm the GM of the only fly shop in Charleston. It's owned by Hadrill's Point Tackle. It's called Fin to Feather on uh, Mount Pleasant. And uh, so I've become the GM there and started doing that about about a year ago I started working there. Um, but I still fish in Beaufort and, and the reason I fish in Beaufort is because it's my home waters. It's, it's where I grew up. It's where I've guided for 10 years. Um, and most of all, it's, it's, you know, a lot of my good clients there and, and people like that too. Um, so yeah, that's it, man. And it's taken me a lot of cool places. You know, I spent six months in Russia in 2013 guiding for Atlantic salmon. Um, you know, all sorts of friends like you. I mean, that's where I met you from was, you know, in Louisiana fishing with Alan and, saying that y'all's place there, you know, and it was kind of cool through boats and people, the fishing industry small. And that's what I love about it is that the guys that are in it are in it. You know, it's not this frou-frou thing. You know, if, if you're a fishing guide, man, it's not easy, you know, and, and you tend to cling and, and attach and be friends with those same guys who enjoy the same things you do. 
Yeah, I would agree. I think though that our friendship began when I started uh, heckling you all the time about your your boat you had. I, I was texting you and calling you. Um, oh, that's right. I, I you were like, that guy. Tell, tell me about your HPX, <laughs> your favorite HPXS, and texting yeah. me like three times a day. And I'm sure you're like, God, who is this this loser that's texting me all the time? <laughs> and that was the other thing, though. I love I love stuff like that, yeah. man. I mean, to me, like, man. I mean, when you're buying a skiff, you know. Are the decision is i mean it's like gosh you know i mean how do i decide and having somebody that's really spent a lot of time and it means a lot you know definitely, definitely. yeah it's, you want to be able to pick somebody's yeah. brain that's that's spent the time on the water and done the things you do and it's one thing talking to someone that, that might run that boat you know in the keys but someone who's running it in similar conditions is what i was going to be but yeah so so you were you were a great resource there and that's it really is a rabbit hole once you're like i'm gonna fish you know i'm gonna fish for a living it's like you can go deep you said you're in russia and you know just guiding all over the place and uh, it's, it's a cool, yeah. it's a cool journey and, and having the flexibility and starting at a young age is definitely cool. Um, to be able to have more flexibility yeah, than if you were like a married person or, you know, you're in your thirties, it's a little tougher to, to travel like that. You're right, man. And and the one thing I learned about it that, uh, was neat is you never knew what was going to happen next, you know? And, yeah. and, uh, I would think if I could go back in time and do it again, I would do it again exactly the same way, you nice. know, and it's, it's more of an adventure, you know, and some people, I think, you know, if we were living 2000 years ago, we would be the guys going on a, you know, six month long hunting trip. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. I think we still have some of that primal instinct left in us to where for especially sight fishing, uh, the excitement and the thrill and to live for it. Uh, but I feel like we're fortunate to do it for a living, but also fortunate to share it with other people too. And that's why I liked what I did. Cause in Buford, like I said, fly fishing is still a very virgin thing, you know, and, yeah. and a lot of places like even Wilmington, you know. Um, but then you look at the Keys and it started there, what, in the 60s or mm-hmm. 50s? And look where it is now. You know, it's a world-class known place. And I think that one day our fisheries will be like that too, you know. Yeah, definitely. I would agree. So what um, yeah. what what makes Beaufort special as far as, I mean, we all know that South Carolina is a pretty good place um, for red fishing, especially, but is there anything special about Buford that makes it a really good fishing destination for someone that's, you know, maybe looking to book a trip? Um, what makes Buford special in that regard? Man, if I could say anything, it would be the tides, you know, the tides in Buford are really what makes it such a special fishery. Um, and it's constantly changing throughout the year, just like a lot of other fisheries, but, when you have a, a seven to nine foot tidal swing every day, um, it makes the fishery challenging, but it also makes it a lot of fun depending on what the tides are and depending on what time of year it is. Um, so I'd say the tides definitely make it unique as a fishery, but also as a place, Buford is 25% of the East Coast marshlands. And so when you look at Buford on a map, it's a tiny little island. And that tiny little island is surrounded by marsh and creeks and oysters and, and fish, you know, this little island that there's only 15,000 people in the city of Euford, you know, and obviously in the last 10 years, the county itself, which includes Hilton Head and Bluffton has grown. Um, but in that destination, people go to Hilton Head or people go to Charleston or people go to Savannah and they don't quite go to Buford, you know, Buford's more historic. It's, it's a lot of history there, um, but it's a small town, so it doesn't hold a lot of jobs. It doesn't hold a lot of infrastructure. You know, like I said, Paris Island is the biggest thing that really put Buford on the map. So then you got this fishery that, I mean, I call it a lifetime fishery, man. I've been fishing there my whole life, and I can tell you the truth. I've only touched about 30% of it, you know, because there's wow. places that because the tides and the seasons, you know, you can never fish at all, man, mm-hmm. you know. 
Um, but I would say that's what makes Beaufort special. It's a lot of different things, but mostly the tides and, and the fact that it's a lot of water and, and not a whole lot of people. Yeah, that makes sense. So like with the tides being such large swings, um, obviously I would think that would make the, the fishing really challenging, especially like in the winter months on a, on a high tide and you can't get in, you know, flooded grass or something like that. It, does that make your job harder? It's very challenging, and, and what makes it even more challenging is the weather, because then you got the weather and the tides, and there's two variables in a guide's career that hurt him, and, and the weather is, is the first thing, and then the second thing is health. You know, if you break your leg, you can't fish. You break your arm, you can't pull. But for me, it's it's the tides and the weather, and when those two clash, I mean, if i got a guy I've been fishing with for seven or eight years, he doesn't want to go if it's blowing 20 out of the north in an incoming tide. I mean, you're going to have muddy water and two-foot chop and everything else. But also, it takes away your vision. You know, if i got clouds and, and, and dirty water in the summertime and, and wind, it makes it hard to see a fish. Um, but also, too, your windows are short. So a lot of places, guys are fishing eight-hour days every day, all day long because they can always see fish all day long or they can always do this or vice versa. And in Buford, you can do eight hour days, probably eight months a year, you know, and have steady sight fishing all throughout the day because of other species and other tactics because the fish are warmer. But like right now, for example, I mean, my solid fishing with a fly or sight fishing is, you know, two and a half hours before low and two and a half hours after low. And other than that, I mean, the window's pretty slim on actually seeing fish because they're so schooled up and, and sitting deeper. Um, so it's, you know, the tides and, and the weather can really hurt you here because they're so drastic. You know, that, that mm-hmm. tide swing's so big. Um, I mean, you could be in a spot that's 10 feet deep and then four hours later it's six inches, you know, which is kind of cool. That is cool. Yeah, you better know what you're doing or you're going to need sea tail. <laughs> yeah, and that happens a well, lot, Well, that can't too, get man. to your problem yeah. in most of the spots you're fishing. So with that being said, like, what would you say is your favorite time of year to fish down there for redfish? Uh, it's it's all year, man. People ask me that all the time. Yeah. And uh, I would truthfully – t- yeah, if, if I could pick one perfect scenario, though, I would say mid-October, uh, uh, early morning flood tide and an afternoon low tide. And the reason for that is, is because in October, what happens is we get a lot of shrimp. The fish are getting kind of cooled down or they're getting a little more active and tailing fish in the grass. If you guys have done it before, uh, I know you guys have done it, but anyone listening, uh, it's a single fish in this thick grass and it's almost like, you know, catching a T-Rex in the middle of the jungle. You know, these fish are hungry. They're looking, they're wagging their tails, their backs are out of the water, but you might make the perfect cast and you strip it and the fly gets caught on the grass you know, and you spook them. And so it's, it's another challenge, but it's fun because they're single fish. And then boom, vice versa, four hours later, you're at low tide, small schools, chasing shrimp, catching them on gurglers. Um, I'd say mid October would probably be my favorite time of year. Right on, right on. Yeah. People always, you know, they, I feel like want to fish these big schools that we get in the winter and whatnot. And that's so Mm -hmm. fun, but I always explained them, like you're saying that single fish when you're sight fishing is, is definitely the most exciting, um, most exciting fish you know it's you versus that fish you've got to make the right cast and play that one angle you know and get that mm-hmm. one fish to eat it definitely challenges yeah. your skills the most out of everything oh, for sure yeah i mean casting but man what yeah go ahead but what i love about this time of year dude is that clear water man uh, mm-hmm. i mean it's, it reminds me of being in the bahamas dude when you know how it is hard in the summertime when it rains a bunch or you get you know a heavy wind or whatever and the water gets turned up 
But this time of year, dude, it's like it can be sunny, you know, it can be windy, and I'm still fishing because the water's gin clear, dude. Yeah, you, you can know? still sight fish those fish in four or five feet of water when they're schooled exactly. up because you can see mm-hmm. them. Yeah. yeah, in the summertime, you get you get over a foot of water and you can't see the fish. You know, that's exactly. That's the most so you're, it's, you're, it's a miss. Sorry, go ahead. The the lag time with the Skype is is sometimes a little frustrating. What were you saying? Yeah, oh, I'm just saying it's it's hit or miss. You know, that's yeah. how it is. It's fishing, but at the same time. Uh, the winter time in, when you get on that flat and you look down and you can see those little black bodies just floating along, man, it's, it's fun. Cause it's, it's different. Fun. You know, it's another change of pace, I guess. That's the cool thing about the seasons. I feel like that we have here as opposed, uh, as opposed to an area, you know, where you might be sight fishing all day, the same way, like maybe South Florida, you know, you get mm-hmm. these different migratory yep. fish coming through, but you know, if you're going bone fishing, it's like kind of the same deal all year, but with our redfish, the, the, you know, with the seasons, the way you fish warm really changes, with keep, which keeps it interesting. Definitely. Do you notice? It does. Thing? It gets technical. Oh, sorry. It yeah, gets- no, I said it does. It gets technical, man. I mean, you know, like there's days where if you're not doing the right thing, you're not going to catch them, yeah. you know, and then the next day could change because of the tide or the conditions. For sure. That's what's cool. Yeah. Do you notice down there, like here this time of year, it can get a little stressful because it's, we don't have the amount of water you have, but it seems that, uh, you know, with more increased pressure, people fishing, it's like, Wintertime is some of my favorite fishing for these, these schools of fish and it can be so successful, but I get so stressed out about other people in the water and, and like, Oh, I need to get to this spot at this tide. I need, maybe I need to go, go there an hour early cause I don't want someone else to be on it. Do you see that down there? Is it still pretty, pretty pressure free? I do. You see that? I do see that, man. I mean, there's, there's a lot more pressure now than there was eight years ago. Yeah. And the reason for that is, is because, you know, people were more aware of it. Uh, more aware that, Hey, you could get a flats boat and you can pull around in January and still fish. I mean, there was a time in Buford that people thought you didn't fish in January, yeah. you know, cause there wasn't any shrimp or there wasn't any bait. Um, and, uh, I think the dolphins are the only thing that really make me mad this time of year. <laughs> you know, I feel like the dolphins hit my fish pretty hard and, and I can tell a lot of times when I'm rolling in there, dude, and I see the fish and my guy makes his first cast, I can kind of tell that either a boat was there before me or a dolphin. Yeah. You know, and then some days the dolphins help me, you know, some days I'll be pulling a flat and it'll be slick calm and I can't see the fish cause it's a little cloudy and then a dolphin will come through and sure enough, the fish get up and move right to my boat. You know, I yeah. mean, it's, uh, I feel like the dolphins hurt me a lot, but people, yeah, because these fish are schooled, man. And when they're schooled, they're not eating a whole lot. They're still eating. Don't get me wrong, but they're not actively feeding cause there's not a whole lot of bait. Right. And I feel like they're a little on edge. They're real tight. And I kind of find if you got a hundred fish together, and one guy spooks, his brother's going to be like, why'd you spook? I'm going to spook too. Maybe there's a dolphin coming out. Right. Me, you know, right. and so they they get definitely a lot more spooky and harder to catch in high numbers, you know. For sure. Are your fish but down it there? it depends, you oh, know. I keep interrupting you. I was, I was going to say, are your fish Wait, down there? Are, are your fish down there creatures of habit this time of year too? Like if, if there's a school in one spot at that tide, they're going to be there through the whole winter, winter season for the most part? They, they are, man. And I tell guys all the time, one of my one of my biggest tips when fishing low tide redfish is look at your watch and look at your tide app, you know, and, and, and when you find those fish at that spot, look at your watch, look at your tide app. And I promise you go back there, the same kind of tide, the same type of day, and you're going to see those fish again, you know. And again, say, say you hit a spot at, at 0.05 at the low tide, and then you go back there next time and it's 1.5. They're not going to be there you know, because they're not in that zone in that certain area. Um, so yeah, I feel like they're super homey. You know, that's the great thing for us as guides is you can kind of learn those patterns just like any other guide in the keys when they learn when the fish are going to flow through on a certain tide, you know? Um, 
And some days they're not there. You know, some days I'll go to a flat and I'll be like, man, where are these fish at? I feel like sometimes maybe they go deeper. You know, maybe a dolphin came in two hours before and they're back in a creek or something, you know. But I would say, yeah, 70% of the time they should be there. Right on. Yeah. So what percentage are you fly fishing and, and what percentage are you spin fishing? Man, I would say for the first probably six years of my career, I was like 50 50. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I came home from Russia and I was gone for like six months. And I got back and I emailed all my clients and I was like, hey, I'm back, I'm back. And then these guys were all fly fishermen. And they were a lot of local guys, a lot of guys within about a four hour drive, whether it's Atlanta, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, you know, places like that, that they had friends or family or houses or whatever it was here. So I got back and I freaking fly fished for like three months, pulling an 18 Maverick for three months. Dude. And that's when I got that S. Yeah. Um, but I still did about 25% light tackle after that. And I ran a 22 Pathfinder for like six years. Um, and what was nice about that boat was being able to do a real light tackle trip, whether or not you wanted to, you know, fish deep for bull reds or, you know, have a four person trip or whatever. So I would say now I'm about 90% fly. Wow. Right on. So what, when you're, um, when you're choosing flies, I mean, I know it differs from season to season, but Uh do you have a go-to fly pattern that you like to use? I do, man. I got this one. I've been tying it for probably eight years now and it's, uh, it's real simple pattern. It's basically just a medium crystal hackle and black, purple, tan, whatever color you want to use, sartreuse, pink. And, uh, and then a little, probably, I don't know, inch to inch and a quarter rabbit sunker off the back, a little bit of crystal flash, some silly legs. And that's a fly I fish probably 80% of the time. In the wintertime, I like to go with more natural colors, you know, like browns and tans and olives, something that's not quite in your face because that water's so clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they don't eat that fly, then I'm like, okay, I'll scratch my head and be like, well, let's try a little shrimp fly. And I'll do like a little tiny quan or a little, you know, redfish style gotcha, something small or something a little more subtle, maybe some, you know, extra small bee chain eyes or maybe no eyes. Um, and that'll be my second try, you know. And then after that, if I can't get a bite on that fly, I'm like really scratching my head. And one time... <laughs> I was fishing this little creek, and these fish looked happy. They were floating. My guy was a great fisherman. He was putting the fly in the right spot every time. And we tried four different flies, all sizes, all different colors. I said, man, I had this little Spanish mackerel fly, this little needlefish pattern. It was like this big, or little uh, glass minnow pattern, I mean. And so he threw that little glass minnow pattern, four pieces of silver crystal flash and like four pieces of gold crystal flash. And they ate that thing all day long. I mean, we caught like 10 fish on this one little tiny fly. So then I started tying those flies. And now that's like my third option. So yeah, I'd I'd say there's three options. Go big, go medium, go really small. And hopefully they'll bite one of those, you know? Yeah. How about for, um, for, for when you're out there spin fishing, if you had to have a go-to bait for, for sight fishing to, to redfish, what would you use? So that's a good one, man. But I like the, uh. And, and, you know, no offense to your sponsors if you have any of those guys on, but uh, none taken. I like the uh, Berkeley Gulp uh, Mantis Shrimp. That's oh, probably yeah. one yeah. of my favorite baits, dude. And I'll hook I've it weedless because it's long enough. And I like the root beer and sartreuse color pretty much all the time. Gotcha. 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 Yeah. Yeah, that, those are nice this time of year. In the summer, I get annoyed with the 
the gulps are tough in general, but the uh, the mantis shrimp with the little appendages that I feel like the pinfish here tear them up so bad. <laughs> you make a cast, they and do. You they get they back, freaking the cast, they're gone. <laughs> yeah, they freaking tear them up. Or the yeah, the bluefish too. I'll eat yeah, them bad the too. But I like those a lot, and then I like the classic like three inch. Uh, uh, just Berkeley gulp shrimp. And then I got into the mirror dines probably like six years ago. And if I got a guy that knows how to fish, I'll throw those mirror dines a lot because that's a cool bait. Cause you can really kind of get the fish agitated with it too. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's a subsurface bait, so it works well in like a foot of water. Um, I feel like you can kind of get cool, especially in a school cause it lands so soft, you know, it's real stealth For sure. and that's- you can chuck them a good ways too. That's a spending aspect of, of a Meridine is, is cool. It, it's a lot like a fly and how you can work it. You know, you can twitch it a couple of times mm-hmm. and let it sit, you know, and especially I use that. In the, I use some hard baits in the schools a lot this time of year if I'm spin fishing for that reason. Of yeah. Just being able to let it sit mm-hmm. with small movements. But yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, that, that's cool. So um, this time of year, oh, what was I about to say? I lost my question. This time of year. This time of year. <laughs> what else do you do? I'm, I'm just kidding. Um. Cool. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, some of the other sh- fishing that you do there in, in um, mm-hmm. Beaufort. Uh, so, I mean, you know, our season, obviously, we catch redfish all year, man. You know, and then when you're trout fishing, one of my favorite times of trout fish is like beginning of April to the middle of May. We get a lot of big fish that are spawning, so they're real fat, you know. Uh, that's when the top water bite gets really good too. You know, obviously early mornings, you know, getting out there at six fifteen and right before, you know, the sunrise. <clears throat> so I do that a lot too. I got, you know, some white tackle guys that really enjoy throwing top water. Uh, and then I get cobia, you know, one of my, I guess I could call it, uh, my specialty is, is cobia fishing. And what we get is a really unique fishery in the broad river where these fish come in shore. Um, and as a kid, growing up fishing for them, you know, you usually would fish for them on the bottom, you know, using just an, you know, regular egg sinker style, you know, Carolina rig with cut mullet or manhaden, or you can catch some live greenies, um, or live eels too worked really well for them. Then I started sight fishing for those things about probably 20 years ago. And what they do, it's really unique. And I learned this from a scientist a long time ago, these cobia come into this river to spawn. And these are, you know, your average size, 15 to 60 pound cobia. Um, and what they do is they come to the river to spawn. So you get the right day. If you get a, a light southwest wind or a light northwest wind on a falling or rising tide or just no wind at all, they'll come to the surface and metabolize their food in the sunlight. And so basically as they're coming to the surface, it's like you eating a steak, right? And then sitting on a bench and somebody's giving you a, a freaking... Chocolate cupcake, okay? (laughs) And sometimes you might eat so much steak that you, you know, you want to just chill and relax in the sun, and then boom, someone brings you a cupcake, and you're like, "Ah, I don't really want to eat it right now, you know? But then other times you eat that steak, and you're sitting on the bench in the sun, and you're like, man, I'm going to freaking nail that cupcake, you know? And you eat it. It's so good, right? Well, these fish are doing the same thing because they're spawning, so they're full of eggs. So these big females that are coming in are full of eggs. And as they're spawning, I mean, as they're surface in the sunlight, they're helping to digest their their body and kind of relieve some stress on their stomach. And so that's when we're catching them. Um, The males do that, too, because a lot of times they're following the females or looking for bait, too. The fish are looking for bait. And then what's neat is you could be in a 12-foot john boat and go and sight fish a 50-pound cobia, you know, literally a half a mile from the boat ramp. Um, 
Yeah, and so that's what's that really cool. cool about it, you know, is the sight fishery. It's really neat. And what I learned uh, and what the scientists learned about five years ago is that these fish are not the same fish as the ones you catch offshore. They actually have their own genetics, their own subspecies, um, which is now why it's protected during the you know best spawning month of the year. They close the season the whole month of May, which is great because um, they were kind of fished out for a while, which is, you know, talking about conservation. Um, man, I saw that fishery change a lot because you could go out there back in 2000 and 2000, 2002, and there would be 90 boats lined up at the bridge with bait on the bottom fishing for them. Yeah. Um, so you think about how many were killed over the last 20 years, um, but now how many were saving over the last five years is pretty cool. Yeah, that is real cool. So when you're fishing for those fish, and I, I, we've talked a bunch, we've tried to connect and me come down there and fish for you. I love Kobe fishing. Um, Cameron actually had a pretty terrible experience. He, he went down, he was in the area and tried to fish there one day and it was pretty tough. But yeah. you, when you're fly fishing, is there anything specific you want in a fly when targeting Cobia? Man, I just like big, flashy, and colorful. You know, they're not picky fish. I've caught them on everything from, um, you know, tarpon toads all the way to flash tail whistlers. Um, you know, uh, one of my new favorites dragon tail david magnum's dragon tail is pretty awesome too uh, it's just a real heavy fly so you got to be able to chuck it pretty good um but no i mean i, I wouldn't say they're, they're they're picky if i could pick one thing to put on a fly it'd be flash because yeah. well, their biggest bait they're eating is a threadfin heron or greeny and those fish are real flashy and they're eating them off the bottom a lot um so i'd say yes my first option would be something with a bunch of flash or the next option would be something that looks like an eel you know, something black and long and slinky, like a big EP, you know, EP minnow or something like that that's black. Um, but like I said, those fish are going to be hit or miss, man. I mean, they're either going to hit it and eat it, or they're going to follow it 20 times and break your heart. You know, that's what's mm -hmm. fun about them. Right. Do you ever see them get shallow? I'm just curious. Man, I've caught them on popping corks with live shrimp before on the edge of the grass. Really? Little guys, little like baby, you know, like 20 inches. Uh -huh. Um but as far as like on the flat swimming around, no, I've never seen one really shallow, but I've heard stories of it. I swear I've seen a video. I, it was either on your Instagram or maybe a YouTube mm -hmm. video where a guy was uh, sight fishing one with a fly rod mm -hmm. and is reeling it in and then like steps off his boat and he's in like knee deep water and he's fighting it. Oh, yeah. That was, that, uh, that, your video? that was David Vaughn. No, that was David Vaughn and, and in the broad river that was at low tide and there's a big sandbar like in the middle of the river. Uh -huh. And so I think he pulled his boat over there to keep the big fish in the water. Uh, okay. what he did. Gotcha, gotcha. I was like, yeah. I'm pretty sure that's what I decided. I was there, like, I'm really... now I'm going down. <laughs> <laughs> I got to try be... this. Yeah. I had, a, I had a rough yeah, trip, man. They're was... usually in like 30 to 50 feet of water. Okay. You know, rarely do I see a fish shallower than like 30 feet, but which yeah. is still shallow for a cobia though, mm -hmm. you know, and at low tide, if you're fishing bait on the bottom, like you would bull reds, uh, I've had guys catch them in like 10 feet of water there. So, you know, yeah, yeah but it's I a would... cool fishery, man. And that's all the way through usually about the first week of July, dude, it's killer, you know? That's awesome. I wish the Cape Fear River had a little cobia spawn in it. I know it's yeah. crazy that th there's all these coastal rivers and the ones that they choose. I mean, I don't know. I, I could be completely wrong, but I don't know of any other coastal rivers between Florida and the Chesapeake Bay that they spawn in other than y'all's to you. Not in that high volume, you know, not in the same amount of fish. Yeah. I know there is some areas like 
you know, obviously Boca Grande, they come into the pass and stuff there. And, um, but as far as like 10, 12, 15 miles in shore, um, I know the Everglades, sometimes you can catch them in the back base there randomly. Um, so they do venture other places, but but as far as purposely going every year to spawn, not that I know of, you know, it seems like Chesapeake, you know, is where they're, they're pushing. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what I think is cool. And, and I didn't realize how unique and special it was until I started guiding because like I'd have a guy from Florida and I'd be like, Hey man, let's look for Cobia for like 20 minutes on the way to this next redfish spot. He'd be like, what? Looking for Cobia? What do you mean? You know? And then we'd see one and he'd be like mind blown, you know? And yeah. I was just kind of used to it, you know? So that's, that's what really I think cool. is cool. It's that, pretty, that is pretty really cool. cool. That is really cool. Yeah. I heard but then about, obviously, Oh, go ahead. I'm listening. I heard about the Cobia fishing down there. I don't know, maybe three years ago. And I was uh-huh. like, I'm definitely, I got to do that. I mean, yeah. catching a cobia on a skiff is like, <laughs> is a, life, a, a lifelong life. story. Yeah, for you sure. could tell. It, although Man, I, haven't, I, still, I haven't accomplished it yet. <laughs> we'll have to yeah. get on there and fish with that one. He can help us. Yeah. You need to, man. It would be a lot of fun, dude. It would be a lot of fun. And, you know, the excitement when you hook one on the bow of a skiff, dude, it's like, I, I can still tell people truthfully, you know, now, almost 11 years later, I still get just as excited as I did the first time I caught one when for I was a sure. kid yeah. because it's just so different, you know, and you only get it for like a month and a half. Yeah. So what, what's an average day down there doing that? And then what's what's a good day doing that? So average day, I'd say if you had the right weather, you're going to see five or six fish and you're going to hook two or three. Okay. Um, a really good day, which happens more than, than you'd think, you would see 10 to 15 fish and you'd hook seven or eight. Nice. Um, and that's all within about a two to three hour time period. Mm-hmm. So you, you normally don't have a long window of good weather. Mm-hmm. It's always at a slack tide or in the afternoon when the tide shifts to a south wind. I mean, that time of year we get south winds every day about two o'clock. And so you got to have the high sun. So that's important. So you're not really fishing till like nine o'clock anyways, mm-hmm. uh, because the reason they're coming up is because of the sunlight. Um, but I would say a, a really good day, you're going to see 10 to 15 fish and you're going to hook seven or eight, uh, an average day, you're going to see five or six and you're going to hook two or three, you know, and that's, what's cool about it. But again, there's days where it'll be perfect. And, you know, I just won't see a fish. Um, this year it happened to me on one of the best times of the year to fish for them. We had that huge heat wave. I don't know if you remember when it got like oh, super yeah. hot. Like yeah, I was nervous that water was getting so warm so quick up here as well. Oh, man, it was weird, dude. And so I had some of my good guys that have been fishing with me a while, and they knew what to look for. I knew what to look for. Like, we were in the zone, excited, slick, calm. And we fished for seven hours and didn't see one fish. And what it is, though, is that I felt like it got so hot at the water column that they thought it was July, and they were going back offshore or not coming up at all, you yeah. know, because they want to stay cool. Mm-hmm. Right. So I thought that was kind of weird, but... Yeah, they're it's inter- usually really good. They're interesting fish. Cameron and I have done a good bit of fishing for them up in the Chesapeake. And um, like mm-hmm. you're saying, you'll be in 30 feet of water, 40 feet of water. And up there, there's a lot of areas. Like the last time Cameron and I were up there, we were having some decent luck. And then we found this new area where it was this huge drop off to like 100 feet of water. But once mm-hmm. we got in that 100-foot zone, all those fish were floating on the surface. So I don't know if you know they're sitting in those deep holes, feeding down. Like you're saying, just – the fact that they come up and metabolize their food like that and they'll, they'll swim so slow, but then you put something in front of them and they'll just come up and annihilate yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> It'd light up, dude. Yeah, and and I think, you know, my theory is like early in the season, the reason they're up there is like I said, to warm up, man, yeah, you know, cause sure. it's colder down deeper and then it's vice versa when it gets too hot, which is why we don't see them. But 
you'll still catch one randomly in July, but you know, it's, it's really rare, you know, it's pretty rare. But what's cool about the cobia is it kind of gets you excited for the rest of the year because I always talk to the crabbers and I'm sure you've learned in your career talking to those crabbers or shrimpers or whoever's out there every single day, seven days a week, you know, those are the guys that you can learn a lot of stuff from. I got this one guy that I always ask him, I'm like, man, you caught any triple tail in your traps yet? And once he catches a triple tail in his trap, that's when I start fishing for cobia. And I don't post anything for a while because I kind of like to look myself for a bit, you know, and um, my first sign of the year to catch one, though, is a triple tail and a crabber's crab trap, and that's about it. That's <laughs> and then awesome. I'll start looking. And I then usually I'll stop ask looking them when I fish. It's time. I usually will ask them about the yeah. triple tail and then start looking for triple tail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Had, we get uh, those two, and then, you know, I'll start to tarpon mid-June, and then I'll tarpon fish from, like, mid-June to the end of August, you know, and that's really hot fishing, you know, you know, it's, it's not a, a whole lot of fun with the conditions, you know, but at the same time we started tarpon fishing a lot more than I used to. And, and I started doing that about six years ago is when I caught my first one on the fly in Buford. Um, and then we get big jacks, you know, triple tail, Spanish mackerel, bluefish, you know, a lot of other species too. Um, but I tend to still find myself staying shallow and fishing for redfish more than anything, you know. That's cool. Uh, Diane Lim- Lemon, I guess it is, she commented, I think she knows you, she said, that one we caught last May was amazing. <laughs> Talking about yeah. the, the <laughs> Cobia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and man, if you could have seen that bite, holy smokes, dude, this fish jumped like four feet to eat this fly, oh, man. It was wicked. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, it was killer, dude. We yeah, had another yeah. question up here um, from David Huger or Hugger. I don't H U G E R. I'm just gonna go Hugger. I like that as a last <laughs> name. Um, I'm a Hugger. But he said, "Do you use popping corks ever there for the cobia?" Or no, I think he's talking redfish. This I just was looking back through some of the questions. Oh yeah, man. oh yeah, all the time, dude. I mean, just just as anywhere else too. It just depends on my water depth and what's going on. But um, I love a popping cork and a, and a live mud minnow too, man, because you can sling them, you know yeah, and. Yeah. And, uh, but I do use popping corks a lot. Yes. Awesome. Are you usually bait fishing when you're using a popping cork? Will you ever put artificial underneath them? I use artificials a bunch on them. You know, it just depends on my day and what's going on with the tides, but I like a mud minnow probably 80% of the time. If I get some good live shrimp, I use those too. But the bad thing is in the summertime, my live shrimp get eaten by other things so much, you know, where I mud minnow is kind of a hardy bait. You can stick it in the grass. It doesn't get stuck, you know, and for sure. But yeah, I still use popping corks a bunch of artificials too. Honestly, I think one of my favorite things to put under a popping cork is a voodoo shrimp. Yeah, the voodoo shrimp. Well, the, the fact that it sits nicely, yeah. the, you know, a lot of artificials they'll hang and they'll be unnatural looking when they when you're not yeah. actually working it. I had a um, hookup ratio on that voodoo is really good too, man. That, that's a, yeah. that's a stick. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good bait. Someone someone told me about that. Um, I don't know a few years ago. And I changed, kind of changed my early morning, um, like summer tactic to, you know, top water early in the morning. Um, and if they're not biting, switch to switch popping to cork and video. voodoo shrimp. <laughs> and I mean, talk, talk about like, you know, keeping your, not getting hung on oysters and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it, it works so good. Yeah. Especially if you're like, you know, working yourself just enough to trim it, you know, a lot of times you get lazy and you'll, you know, you'll put a three foot leader on and you'll fish that all day and you're hanging up and stuff. But if you're changing that leader for the depth that you're in, it can be real nice in the summer. Yeah. Like I'm, if, otherwise you're going to hang, hang with the voodoo a lot, but yeah, the popping cork's a great bait here. We use that a lot as well. 
So yeah, pretty common. Yeah. That, that, that brings me to, a, to the question. Um, do you, what baits do you like for like, uh, if you're search casting, you know, not really sight fishing, but you're just kind of blind casting, looking for redfish down there in the summertime or winter. Do you have any search baits? You like? Man, you know, like I said, I mean, that, uh, that, uh, mantis shrimp is probably one of my favorite mantis baits, we, you know, weedless with like a quarter ounce, you know, just to get down a little deeper, I can work the bait a little faster. It keeps off the shells really well. Uh, and then, you know, I like a couple like the, uh, I'm trying to think it's like the diesel minnow paddle tail from Z-Man's really good. I like that and kind of like that grayish smoky color. Um, and out there that, if I got, you know, a good, again, a good angler that can really work and artificial, but I mostly like to stay weedless with all my baits if I'm working for fish because there's so many oysters and you might memorize that bank like at the back of your hand, but your guy fishing with you doesn't memorize it either. And so if I'm searching for fish, I like to always pretty much have a weedless bait, no matter what it is, right. you know, yeah. but I'm not too picky about my artificials, man. One thing, uh, I have learned is that I've seen these fish eat some crazy stuff and, uh, I, I like to match my artificial based on the water color. If the water's really muddy. I use a darker bait. You know, I like scent a lot too. I feel like it helps, especially in the summertime when there's a lot of other bait around, you know, I think a little bit of scent can go a long way. Um, but paddle tails are probably my favorite search bait if I could pick one, you know, an assortment of different kinds. Yeah. You know, they get a lot of really good, good movement, you know. Definitely. Do you fish any spinner baits, chatter baits, anything like that? No, I like the redfish magic. I'll throw that sometimes, you know, I like how that rides hook up too. And, and, uh, but again, you know, I'm, I'm mostly sight fishing a lot, you know, as far as blind casting goes, um, if I'm blind casting, I'm pretty much using the basics like I like I always have. You know, I'm not too, I'm not one of those guys as a as a light tackle fisherman that's really, um, I don't want to say, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like I'm not picky. Yeah. You know, I'm not one of those real picky guys, and I'm the same way with the fly because I think if you can work that bait right, that a redfish is going to eat it. You know, yeah, and there are days that presentation. Me too. I feel the same way, man. It's like I have a fly and I know if you can strip that fly right based on what that fish is doing, he's going to bite it. But at the same time, there are days we're changing it up. Like I said, colors, I think, mean a lot sometimes. Darker for darker water, lighter for cleaner water, you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you work a big old bright chartreuse bait in the middle of the winter when it's super clear. The fish, you know, if they're real aggressive, they might eat it, but you'll see fish spook a lot more. On, and, and, and even just a dark solid bait too when it's really clear yeah. sometimes isn't great i mean a lot of times they'll eat it but when yeah. they're spooky something that kind of blends in maybe those edges you know clearer bait something that is a little less intrusive can be can be pretty yeah, good i would agree yeah I would agree. yeah i used to fish jerk shads a ton and then i started to find that a lot of times my fish were refusing the jerk shad because i was like just you know retrieving it too hard or too fast you know where right. I, I kind of realized that slower movement kind of makes them a little more opportunistic you know well, it's so easy with a fly and a spinning rod, especially a spinning rod. I mean, I'd say it's probably pretty even. Uh, you're oftentimes retrieving it way faster than you even think you are. You know, with the spinning rod, the nice thing about a paddle tail, yep. you know, is you can just sit there and, and throw it out there and reel it straight back mm -hmm. in and not have to do anything. And the bait still mm -hmm. looks supernatural. But um, mm -hmm. I was doing some, taking some drone video the other day. Um, working a paddle tail. I thought I was working it really slow and you could see the fish in it too. And it was just flying past these fish. And I was like, I don't know if I Trying can reel this any yeah. slower. You know? <laughs> yeah. So it's, and it's funny too. I mean, you'll see them when they're biting sometimes, you know, those red fish, especially when you're stripping a fly, you might only strip 
rip it three inches, but he still misses it. Yeah. And oh, so you yeah. think about a bait when you're twitching it and you do one reel, one rotation and one twitch, that's like eight inches, oh, Yeah. you know, and sometimes eight inches for a redfish to, to close the gap is a ton and they'll give up on it, oh, yeah. you know, especially Definitely. if the water clothers not good or it's muddy or whatever, you know, they want that easy meal. You watch them pushing on a bank that's loaded with shrimp in the summertime and they're, you know, they might be eating every 10 seconds because, and there's a hundred yeah. shrimp in front of their face, but they're waiting for that one that's yeah. just right there, an easy meal for them to open their mm-hmm. mouth and grab. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, but I like to bait fish just as much as I like to like tackle fish. And one funny thing I learned years ago is I'm sitting on this low tide flat and I'm staked out and I got this school in front of me and I got a popping cork with the live shrimp. I got a popping cork with the live mud minnow and I got a freaking Berkeley gulp shrimp. Okay. Uh-huh. Guys are fishing all over these fish, spooking them, moving here, spooking them. They're swimming right by. They're not spooked swimming by them, and I'm not getting any bites. So I'm like, okay, I got this pack of cut mullet. I'm going to cut, you know, bring this out, cut up some bait, and, and see if this changes. So I take the guy's Berkeley gulp off. I put a piece of cut mullet on there. He chucks it out there. These fish come back in there. Boom. He hooks up. So the other guys reel in their corks. I put cut mullet on their corks. I throw those out there, and sure enough, boom, they hook up on the cut mullet. And that was one tactic that I learned in the summertime, man, is like when it's hot and those fish aren't eating other stuff, you know, they're always eating off the bottom. You know, they're, they're scavengers just like mm-hmm. a bonefish, man. Yeah. Um, so a cut mullet, you know, I don't know if that's the best advice, but sometimes if they're not biting, have a pack of cut mullet on the boat because yeah. you can catch some fish with that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Be prepared. It, it's yeah. crazy. That, that reminded me of this story, which is somewhat similar, but I was sitting on our jetty here this fall and it was when we had a bunch of the big bull redfish around and. I had good, you know, six inch mullet that I'd caught in the cast net that morning. Super lively, fishing them on the bottom. I was in the A spot, like I was where we should be catching them. Yeah. My buddy <laughs> pulls up beside me and hooks something on and drops it down. I'm like, what the heck did he just hook on? And like 30 seconds later, boom, doubles up, big, you know, 30 pound redfish. And he's like, I was like, what are you, what are you fishing with? And he had been trout fishing that morning, caught a bunch of lizard fish, cut them in half, and was fishing half lizard fish and was crushing me. I had beautiful live mullet and these redfish are eating these cut in half lizard fish. And I was like, all right, well yeah, now I know what to yeah. do with the lizard fish I catch. But, but yeah, sometimes they just want to smell something, slide over there and just scoop it up off the bottom. I'd say, you know, sometimes more than, than others. I know it is crazy. And I never, I met one of my good friends, uh, Captain Jay Malfurs. I used to work with him and we had a two, like you were saying, I was fishing my A spots. I had live shrimp. I had artificials. I had mud minnows. I was trying everything and it was just one of those days I just couldn't catch them. And I'm thinking like, man, the tide's perfect. The weather's perfect. One fish here, one fish there, two fish here. I wasn't getting my bites, you know. And and uh, I'm the kind of guy I'll fish a spot for 20 minutes. If I don't get like the same amount of bites I want to get there, I'm moving. Yeah. You know, I kind of have that window, man. And I get back to the dock and I'm like, you know, talking to you, I'm like, dude, we had a tough day. We caught like three or four, lost a couple on oysters. And he's like, dude, we caught like 15. And I'm like, what? he's like, cut mullet, man, just using cut mullet. And I never fished cut mullet. You know, I'm not the kind of dead stick style kind of fisherman. You know, I like action. I like moving stuff. I like seeing stuff. And so then I tried it my next, my next day out. And, uh, I was on the pathfinder with four rods and cut mullet, dude. And we freaking whacked them. And I was like amazed (laughs) that these fish are picking up this dead bait off the bottom, man. You know? And then I thought about it. It's like, Fish is a fish, man. You can only try so much, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I swear we overthink them way too much sometimes. Like we got a freaking love it, fishing man. podcast I... here talking about all these different fishing techniques. <laughs> all you really need is cut mullet. <laughs> hey, dude, it keeps us going, man. That's the one thing. If you figured it out, it wouldn't be any fun, you know. Yeah, for sure. That that uh, figuring out the next little little piece to the puzzle is always uh, always fun. Yep. Ever, so when we went there, 
Um, our day saver was bonnet heads. Yeah. Those things are awesome. Yeah, we don't, don't get the bonnet really, heads in short hair. You probably really, hate them down there. Yeah, you probably do. Uh, I really man. wish we I don't had mind them, here, them. man. Because yeah. they were really fun to sight fish. Do you ever find yourself like, man, this day sucks. Uh, we haven't caught anything. I'm going to go get these guys on a bonnet head. Sometimes, man, I tell you, sometimes I'm like, man, I, I would love to go bonnet head fly fishing. I got this guy from Tennessee I fish with, and he dedicates a whole day just sight fishing sharks. And half the time when he comes down, those are the days you don't see any sharks, you know. <laughs> uh, but it's fun. It's also good practice, too, for anybody who's getting into flats fishing. When you see that bonnet head cruising a flat with his back out, man, practice casting at it. Yeah. See if you can get him to react to it. Um, but, yeah, it is fun. My buddy Harry Tomlinson, he's a captain here in Charleston, and Harry absolutely loves fly fishing for sharks. And he's figured it out pretty pretty well where, you know, bonnethead's hard, hard to get to bite, man. I'm sure you've casted at a few and wondered, like, why didn't you look at my fly? But, you know, they don't have good vision, so you got to have a bigger, beefier fly they can kind of feel or cleaner water, but also a fish that's eating, man. You see that bonnethead with his nose down eating a crab, that's probably one you'll get to bite. Mm-hmm. But I don't fish for them a whole lot, but I have before, yes. I've spent, you know, full days just fishing for sharks, and it's challenging, man, and it's fun. It's something different, especially if the red fishing sucks, you know. Yeah, they're they're funny animals. We do some shark fishing here, and, and getting more and more into the sight fishing for sharks is. I've kind of mm-hmm. spent time learning. Oh, it's actually pretty. It's something we don't have a lot of bonnet heads. But we got a bunch of black tips and spinners, and we got some big bull sharks. And mm-hmm. you, there's areas you can go and just get these, you know, like shots at fish that are just free swimming, and those mm-hmm. fish will usually eat pretty well. And then there's other times we'll go chum. We'll put out chum and try to pull them up on a sandbar or something like that. And switch them. Mm-hmm. Well, once they smell that blood, it is so hard to get them to eat artificial for mm-hmm. me at least. I mean, you got to get that really yeah. quick bite right off the bat. Once they realize what's going on, it, it, mm-hmm. it seems to get pretty tough. Do you ever, are y'all mostly just pulling and, and just letting shots happen? Are you ever chumming for them or anything? That's it, man. Sometimes I'll see them when I'm looking for cobia too. And, you know, we'll think it's a cobia for about 45 seconds till we get to the fish. And, you know, we'll play around with them a little bit, but I don't fish for them a whole lot. Um, as far as like targeting them specifically. Um, but at the same time, they are fun to fish for because they're not easy, man. Like they can kind of make, you know, tough one time. I was fishing with Dave Grossman one day with his little boy and Dave is, uh, one of the owners at, uh, Southern culture on the fly. It's an online magazine. And I had cut mullet and we must've sight fished like 15 sharks that day and couldn't get any of them to eat. (laughs) And that was like one of the days I'm like looking at Dave and I'm completely embarrassed, you know, cause I'm like, this is the easiest thing to possibly do, but we couldn't get a shark to eat that day. And if Dave's listening to this, he'll be laughing, man. Cause I was like stressed out. You know how you get that feeling like, why can't it work? What am I doing wrong? You know, I couldn't get a shark to buy a cup mullet, dude. You know? Oh my gosh. They're funny, man. Like they'll, there's a switch. I mean, I've seen it days. I'll, I'll sight fish here for them and like that. You can't get anything to bite. And then another day they want to tear everything to pieces. You know, I also eat. feel like that, that there's places where they want to feed. Yeah. And then there's for places sure. where like they're, they're, they're just there chilling. Yeah. It's just like any fish like that, that, but, but the shark more so than others. It's yeah. like they, they've got their, their times where they're going to feed and they've got their times where they're just yeah. going to hang out. Well, they're know. definitely the boss of the flat, man. When I see them, they come up to my boat and you know how they look at your boat a little bit too, especially the bonnet head, like real curious. They're like, what is that? You know? And then they'll cruise off and, uh, people ask me all the time, do sharks ever eat the fish? And man, one time in my whole career, I had a guy hooked up on one on the fly and a shark came and, and ate the redfish. It was a black tip, like you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think my coolest shark experience in my entire life, I had a guy topwater fishing for trout. And it's just, uh, you know, your regular, <clears throat> like, uh, 
black and chartreuse top dog and he's working it on the edge of this shell dude in about three feet of water catching trout and all of a sudden boom this thing comes out of the water dude and i'm like it's a tarpon you know i thought he just <laughs> caught this tarpon and then it wiggles around and wiggles around and then goes down and then boom jumps back up because you gotta remember it's dark yeah, you know like yeah. you can't hardly see anything and sure enough it was a spinner shark talking about spinner sharks yeah. dude inshore like 10 miles bit the dude's top water bait it was that's so crazy. cool dude. yeah that's yeah nice. it was awesome but it looked like a great white or mako on freaking Discovery Channel, dude. It was killer. It's a big <laughs> shark. It was like three feet. Speaking of, yeah, it was cool, man. On the top, on the topic of sharks, when <laughs> I went there, uh, Kobe fishing unsuccessfully, we literally idled all the way from the boat ramp where the bridge is. I'm not sure what that boat ramp's called, but mm-hmm. we went all the way out to where it meets the ocean, and we were like, "Oh man, there's got to be Kobe out here." And I saw one of mm-hmm. the largest sharks I've ever seen in my life really? surface right at the, right at the yeah, mouth and it dorsal fin out of the water. And I was up on the bow and I was like, holy crap, this thing is <laughs> almost as big as my bed. <laughs> yeah. You see some crazy stuff out there that time of year too. Like there's, there's one year we had all these leatherback sea turtles and I caught fish off of these leatherbacks for like a month, dude. But I don't know what it was, but it brought in these leatherbacks and these things are like vw bugs when they come up you've seen one oh, off huge. the beach yeah, before? We get a, we get a yeah. the those things are yeah. dinosaurs and they're not afraid of the boat so it's so cool you can get like you know 20 yards from them and check them out and they're just like looking at you and stuff too yeah, yeah. Um, but you'll see that and then some really crazy looking rays you get some really big rays in there um but yeah some big sharks dude when you, had the, that river. when you had the year of all the leatherbacks do you remember did y'all have a bunch of jellyfish that year jelly balls Oh, man, tons of them, dude. There were so many that when you were running the boat engine, you could feel them as you're running idle and just tit, 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 hitting the propeller. I you think know, that's what drop. it is because this year we had more jelly balls than I've ever seen, and we had mm-hmm. more leatherbacks than I've ever seen. So I think they're just yeah. following those big jellyfish. And there's days where the jelly balls are so bad, I feel like it affects the cobia fishery. Really? Because, you know, there's so many freaking jellies on the surface, dude. It'd be like you cruising around and the little balls hitting you in the head the whole time. <laughs> you know, I feel like sometimes they don't get up as much. So, like, there's days I'll look for gaps that there's no jelly balls, you yeah, know. And that's where you're looking. Um, we had a few more, a few questions here. One person yeah, said, yeah. Um, what is the best fly setup to start learning targeting wintertime schooling reds? So, I guess, what's the best your favorite fly setup for redfish. So like uh, rod, reel, and line? Yeah, rod, reel, and line. Uh, yeah, brand, I start... but also weight and, and all that kind of stuff. If you were just getting into it, man, Reddington makes a really cool setup called the Reddington Path, and it's a rod, reel, and fly line for like 180 bucks. You know, it's a good entry-level rod, good entry-level reel. I actually use those in my schools as well. Um, but you'd want to get an eight weight, and the reason you want to get that eight weight is because you're casting pretty long distances in the wintertime. You know, you're using longer leaders, you know, nine, ten-foot leaders. Uh, your flies aren't really that big, um, but the perk of that eight weight is when you got a little bit of wind, you still have some oomph, you know. Um, so if you were getting into it, I'd recommend getting an eight weight. If you want to get a nice introductory setup, that Reddington Pass setup is pretty awesome. You know, it's pretty affordable, and, you know, it'll last you a while. I've got another question here, and you can answer this if you want to. I know tarpon fishing can be a little secretive, but someone said, what are the GPS coordinates? I'm just kidding. That's not what they said. They said <laughs> what, what conditions do you look for when tarpon fishing in your area? Oh, man, I don't look for conditions. I look for fish. Gotcha. And the fish in, in South Carolina, well, I'm not going to say everywhere, but the fish in South Carolina are constantly moving, man. And it's a lot different than the Keys because we don't have the clear water. We don't have the smaller tides. And... uh 
a lot of times they're feeding. And so what I like to look for is fish feeding. You know, if you can find them in the kitchen, you're doing pretty good. Um, and if you can find them in the living room, you're doing even better. And what I mean by that is fish that are relaxing in their environment. Um, so I don't look for conditions. I look for fish. And, and what I mean by that is fish chasing bait, fish rolling. Um, and to do that, you got to put the time in to look for it. Yeah. You got to be at the right place at the right time, just like a redfish spot. Um, and truthfully, the first time I caught a tarpon on fly in South Carolina, I spent about 30 minutes doing what I was doing and trying to do it for the first time in my career. And it worked. And one of my clients hooked it. I didn't even hook the fish. You know, I wish I would have hooked that one, but it was one of my clients and I could see these fish from where I was wade fishing for tailing redfish. And that's how it all happened. Um, and so you figure out these tactics, but look for fish. Don't look for conditions. Don't look for spots. You got to look for fish because they're not always there. They're always moving. I could have one day that's really good and go to the same exact spot and there's nothing there yeah. because they moved 10 miles north or 10 miles south. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good so point. It's fun. That's, I'm going to start using that. Don't look for conditions, look for fish. And it, 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 that plays into another whole idea of like, you know, don't, don't just wait for the conditions to go fish, get out there and learn from every condition, you yep. know, every weather day, every, there, there's so much to learn from each piece of that, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. no doubt. And that's, what's cool about the tarpon fishing. I don't pick days to go tarpon fishing. I'll tell my angler or my friend or whoever was with me that day, hey, let's go check this out real quick. You know, or you're starting to lose your good tide or whatever it is for the day of red fishing. Hey, let's go check this out. Or let's go check that out. It's not like, hey, let me book a tarpon trip, you know. Um, but I tell my guys that time of year, hey, we can fish for 30-pound jacks. We can fish for redfish or we can go look for tarpon for a little bit. And when you put in that time and know those spots and say, hey, there's no tarpon today, then you go red fishing. You know, that's what's cool. Yeah. I wish we had clear water like the Keys. I love tarpon fishing. If I could pick one thing to do, man, uh, tarpon fishing is my favorite thing to do. As a guide, I pick days in Chukaleski and Alamorada and Apalachicola, and I fish and, and hire other guides to tarpon fish because yeah. it's a big fish. It's a lot of fun. And when I get some bouts, I like watching those fish fly, man. It's cool when they come out of the water, dude. It's, you know, the bites are awesome, you know, everything else. But watching them fly, man, is just incredible, uh, you know. And watching that fish eat, man. I, I like watching them fly, but throwing that tiny little fly yeah. and watching their mannerisms. And, you know, like you can kind of read a redfish, but when you put a fly in front of a tarpon, <laughs> there's just so much body there. Like you can really see what he's thinking. I'm doing all these hand movements and yep. stuff here, and I realize I'm not on camera. <laughs> Cameron's sitting here laughing. <laughs> but um, we got a few more questions. Yeah, it's fun, man. I'm going to run us yeah. through. They said, uh, or first off, David Craigle, C-R-A-G-I-L-E, he said, tell Owen. I said, hey, please. So I'm telling you, he said, hey. And then <laughs> David, good to see you, man. Griffin uh, Zwack said, when looking for tailing reds on flood tide flats, how do you find the flats they are on? Are there things that indicate a good flat? There's a lot of things, man. And there's a lot of, it's, it's, it's harder than you think it is, but I tell you, your number one tool is going to be Google Earth. You know, if you're new to it and you're trying to find flats and places to fish, Google Earth is your number one key. And I wrote a three-part series of articles for a gink of gasoline probably six, seven years ago about flood tide fishing. What I like to look for is obviously a short Spartina grass flat, okay? And that's grass that's lower than your knee. You know, it's hard bottom. There's fiddler crabs. And then once you find that area, then you're looking for feeder creeks. Those are the creeks that they're going to come in on. Those are the, you know, first areas that water's going to start flooding. Um, But again, it's putting in the time. You walk a flat. I I can't tell you how many flats that I've fished in the grass that look perfect, but there's no fish, you know? 
and I don't know why there's no fish, but there's no fish. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that come together, but mostly, obviously, the flat, the grass, the filler crabs, that's the number one important, and then feeder creeks. But what you can do from Google Earth that I learned years ago, look at that flat, you can see the feeder creeks and know where to stand or know where to put your boat and know where to be at when that water first starts coming up, because that's going to be your hot window the first hour or two hours on that flood tide or when those fish are first getting up there to feed and tail. Um, so I'd say feeder creeks, short grass, and a lot of fiddler crabs, and you'll have some pretty good success if there's fish in the area. Yeah. And you would say probably more feeder <laughs> creeks to a flat than less, like the more access points, the better. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then closer to bigger water too. You know, if you're really far up river or in a place where there's not a lot of open water, I'd say your chances are maybe a little less of seeing a lot of fish. I like to fish flats that are closer to bigger rivers. When I say bigger rivers, like, you know, not even a quarter mile wide, but, you know, not little tiny creeks everywhere right. because then there's no place for those fish to live, you know, and that tide falls out. They need somewhere to be at, somewhere to hang out at. Um, and a lot of the flats I fish are going to be within 200 yards of, of deeper water, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it just depends. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. So, there's a lot of flats we have here too that that uh you know there'll be one creek going up to it and they might be good but but i'd say more of them are against like a long hard edge of big water or an area with a lot of those feeder creeks as well yep and then also the nice thing about being closer to that deeper water is when the tide starts falling you don't get stuck (laughs) (laughs) or you don't have to push it as far at least (laughs) yeah sometimes i mean you've been there you get out of the boat and you can't pull anymore you got to get out and push that sucker off and knock on wood i haven't been stuck on a flood tide flat before um, but I've gotten pretty darn close on that last shot. There's a fish in the corner and you got to stay out there for 20 more seconds and that's your, your, you know, oh, make it or break it. And that time of year, it's so hot and you're sweating and then you're dragging your boat through five inches of water, just pouring yep. sweat. It's, yeah. It's what it's all yep. about. <laughs> yeah. Now my fiance does all my laundry and I never realized how bad I smelled after all those days too, you know? <laughs> oh, it's brutal. It's brutal. I think one of the coolest things too about uh, flood tides and one thing I probably didn't start doing until this past year was, uh, I almost think that the, sometimes it's easier to find those fish, uh, before you can even get your boat up on the grass, oh, yeah. in the grass. And you can just mm-hmm. hang out on the edge and look in there. And if you see some tails, mm-hmm. just wade to them. Yeah, for sure. That, I had one eat yep. this or you year can... literally five feet in front of my feet. <laughs> and he fun. was swimming towards me, and I dangled <laughs> yeah. my fly in front of him. It was, I didn't even cast. I dangled my fly in front of him, and he ate it. <laughs> you can get so close to him in the grass because they, they, you know, they, oh, they their awareness yeah. of what's around them is a lot less mm-hmm. than when they're in open water. Yeah, would you? Uh, yeah, there's no predators up there except for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The worst predator, you know. <laughs> but talking about uh, waiting for the fish to come in, you know, a lot of times you can hear them back there too. And one of the good signs of a good tide, what I mean by a good tide is good fishing, is that you can hear the fish sipping shrimp and eating periwinkles and things like that on their way in in the deeper grass too, like you're mm-hmm. saying. And so you hear where that fish was. Keep an eye there and ten minutes. You know, I mean, Hanson Lau, you're friends with Hanson, yeah. and Hanson came and fished with me in Beaufort probably four or five years ago, and his first time fishing for tailing redfish in the grass on his on a flood tide. And so we got to the spot, and we parked my boat, and I'm sitting in a little tidal creek, and the grass is still completely dry. And I'm like, dude, I promise that in 15 minutes, you're going to get a shot at a tailing fish where that ground is hard. He's looking at me. He's like, no way, dude. No way, man. This is crazy, dude. And there's like bugs all over the boat and stuff, you know. 
And sure enough, dude, he gets up there and we're chilling, we're talking and tide starts coming in and he's looking and he spots the fish and there he is tailing where it was dry 15 minutes ago. And he laid a cast and that fish was so shallow that his back was out. He wasn't even tailing, you know, it was in like three inches of water. Hansen hooked that fish and, and, you know, Hansen, he's a great angler, great guy, great guy. And, uh, he hooked that fish, and I thought it was badass that I was able to show him something new. Yeah, I mean, this sure. is a guy that's catching permit, tarpon, and doing the other things that we always love to do because we don't get to do it right. much. And and there he is catching a flood tide redfish and thinking that it's the most badass thing he's ever done. You know, yeah. it's pretty cool. It, it is yeah. funny how it's. I wouldn't say it's the grass is always greener, but you always want to do the thing that you can't do in you know mm-hmm. your fishery. I, I feel that exactly. quite often. Especially this time of year. We all have that addiction, man. We all have that addiction. We dude. do. <laughs> well, dude, we're already at an hour or an hour and a few minutes. But if people, we're gonna yeah. end this show here in a minute. But if people want to get in contact with you to book a trip or or uh, pick your brain a little bit, what's the best way to do that? So uh, you can go to my website. It's BufordSCFishingCharters.com, or uh, obviously you can follow me on Instagram, Captain Owen Player. Um, my email address is OwenPlayer at gmail.com. And uh, feel free to look me up on the web and, and any questions you got or anything, you know, feel free to shoot me an email. I was happy to help. Right on. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And we, 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 you and I have made plans. There was like three or four years running where we made plans to fish together. And then you had to do something or I had to do something and we got to make mm-hmm. it happen here. Maybe this year we'll do it this spring. It'd be fun, dude. It'd be really fun to get your tower boat down there too. You can whack them with that yeah. thing. Man. <laughs> yeah. Bad news about my tower yeah. boat. I just found out that I've got two blown heads on my Yamaha. Oh no, so man. I'm, I'm trying to figure that out right now. I don't have to replace the motor, but I'm gonna have to repa- replace the heads. And so it'll be, I mean, it'll be done by the spring, but I don't even want to talk about my That's tower good. boat right now. Yeah. Last, <laughs> last year, the tower <laughs> out this year, the motor's jacked up. So it's been a big old money pit so far. Hey, that's what boats are, dude. That's oh, what boats for are. Sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, well, guys, thanks for tuning in to uh, this episode of Eastern Current. Thanks again, Owen, for coming on. And we'll definitely have to do it again. Maybe come down there and and do some Cobia fishing and then do like a Cobia podcast or something like that. That'd be awesome, guys. I had a lot of fun talking with you, Judson. Good to see you guys and uh, everyone listening. Thanks for listening to guys. And like I said, glad to help, man. Any questions you ever got, give me a shout and get you out on the water. Right on, right on. Well, guys, thanks for tuning in. I'm Judd. This is Cameron Pappas. (laughs) I've got a video of Cameron I'm going to put on on Instagram tomorrow, so be sure to look for that. (laughs) I just found it on my computer. He's going to be very embarrassed. But, <laughs> but guys, thanks for tuning in. Episode 29, we will see you all next week. We're bringing on, um, by request, God, I can't remember his name, but he's a kayak fisherman from the Chesapeake Bay. Does does some awesome stuff up there in the Chesapeake, catching big black drum and cobia and all kinds of stuff from his kayak. So it's going to be a pretty cool episode. And he, he, even though he's fishing from a kayak, there's still a lot to learn from guys. People that can get it done on a kayak without a motor, I have a lot of respect for him. Yeah, He doesn't uh, need a motor. He yeah. just hooks into cobia and he gets pulled around. Exactly. <laughs> hooks a cobia and says, hey, point me back to the motor ramp over there. <laughs> but, um, well, cool, guys. Thank you all so much. We are going to be out of here, and we'll see you all next week. Later.